Well, today we're going to be looking at probably, probably one of the most hotly debated, most uncomfortable subjects of the Bible. We're going to be looking at judgment. I thought I'd better put that right at the front, just in case we're unsure. And as I said, I'm not going to apologise for that. It's here. We're walking through book three of Psalms. I can't ignore this particular one, I don't think. Now, it's not a subject that's debatable because the Bible doesn't speak very often about judgment. Jesus is forever, if you want to look at him, um, he's forever warning his listeners of the judgment to come. When he returns, which that return is made sure and certain because of his resurrection and vindication by his father. This subject is also not a debatable subject because the texts that mention judgment are difficult to understand. They're simple. The Bible is really kind of overtly simple on this subject. They're straightforward. There are graphic warnings. And I guess, as we'll see today, it's fairly sobering too. But judgment is is probably the biblical subject that is is least spoken about in churches today. And I guess it'd be helpful to say, why? Well, probably, I think, because my heart, and I guess yours, my heart does not want to concede the fact that there will be a time when each of us has to give an account for that way that we've spoken, the way that we thought, and the way that we've behaved in every part of our lives. We don't want to give an account. And I guess, certainly as I think of myself, and I guess you'll be like this too, it's a matter of power and control. We see power struggles around us, don't we, all the time in the world and on the news, you know, in the deserts of Syria, the streets of Egypt at the moment, and the courts of Russia. There's been interesting stuff going on there, hasn't there? But, but the greatest struggle of power that I know is in my heart. It rages all the time. I, I guess we get a glimpse of it, glimpses of it. You might do in your, your struggles up the career ladder or uh, in, perhaps in relationships, because I, and I guess you do as well, we love to be in control. We love to be the ones calling the shots in every element of our lives. We love to be masters of our own destiny, don't we? And at many times in our lives, that seems to be the case, doesn't it? We appear in control, but there are those times, aren't they? And they're difficult times. Things like bereavement and illness and the loss of relationship and the loss of love. Those are the times when the reins of our lives seems to be in the hands of another, don't they? So who really is in control? Well, Asaph, the writer of this song or psalm, same sort of thing, he makes it clear right from the beginning, doesn't he? He has in his mind, there is only one contender for the king. One contender for the man who's got real control over everything. Who holds the reins of life in his hands, but also the reins of death. And you see that, look at in the introduction. This is scripture, hence why I asked him to read it. Verse naught, you might call it, okay? It's called the superscription in most of the Psalms, they have one. And, and you see there, Asaph is in no doubt in his mind who is in control, the one who's able to destroy. But why a Psalm about judgment? And why a Psalm about judgment that begins in such a, well, it seems like quite an insensitive way, doesn't it? It's quite a crass way. Look at verse 1. You kind of, uh, reading that alone, you'd be inclined to think that 
if you just read Psalm 1 and I were to ask the question, cover up the rest, you know, what do you think this psalm is going to be about? I guess most of us would put our hands up, it's going to be a psalm of praise, isn't it, Andy? Or, you know, I wonder whether it's going to be a psalm just you know, looking at all the great characteristics of God. That's what our inclination would be, but we know that's not the case. Tim's just read it to us, the whole of it. We know where it's heading. It's about judgment, but it begins with praise. It's a strange beginning, isn't it? Look at verse 1. We give, you, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. Now, you, you come to any part of the Bible, any literature, if, you, if you're honest with yourself, and you can't look at the one little line, one little verse on its own. You can't isolate literature or scripture like that. We must see it in its broader context. Let me illustrate that. I mean, we just come back from the Lake District. You know, I've got some beautiful pictures. I cycled around Derwent Water one day. It's amazing, beautiful sunshine. Can you imagine, though, if, if you were looking at a lake, so I was at Derwent Water, imagine you were looking at this beautiful lake and, and you simply stared at the water and you made conclusions about the area of the Lake District by just looking at a, a little area of water, ignoring all of the mountains and everything around you. It'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? You're taking the lake out of its context, of the mountains that it reflects by day, and you can see them as you look into the lake, or, or the moon by night. You're missing the bigger picture, aren't you? Well, if you take verse 1 on its own, it's a crass introduction to a very sensitive and a very difficult subject. You need to look around and see its context. And you begin then to see why praise is the most appropriate way to begin this song about judgment. Why don't you just flip back? Look at... Um, the previous verses of the, the previous chapter. Look at verse 22 particularly. And look at Asaph's cry there to God. Verse 22. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Asaph, like so many of us, probably in our workplaces, maybe amongst our friends, sadly, even maybe amongst our families, we hear and experience the God that we love and have put our trust in. We hear him being mocked, don't we? It's like a sport in our culture at the moment, isn't it? And it really hurts, doesn't it? My boys, you know them well. It happens in school already, in the playground. Even like, you know, that horrible little phrase, OMG, is... It's so common now, it's even kind of common tongue in the, in, in the classroom. Asaph pleased with God that he will not ignore this at the end of Psalm 74. And Psalm 75, it's like Asaph has kind of gone to bed one night. And he's woken up with this greater perspective in his mind. Things are tough. The God he loves is being mocked. And yet he wakes and he begins to see clearly. God will not overlook the taunts and the, the uproar of his enemies. That is, he will judge. He will judge. 
And therefore, when you get to Psalm 75, verse 1, it's kind of that Asaph reminding himself of God's greatness and his characteristic of justice as well. Which means what? Well, for all of us too, it means we can hand over our anger and our bitterness about those who mock God before us. And we can hand them to God. He's the judge. He's the judge. And that is a cause for praise and thanks. As it is for Asaph right here in verse 1. So there's thanks. I put it on your outlines there. Thanks in the face of mockery. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name, he says, is near. Now God's name is, is, is part of him, him making himself known. His name is near because he has acted amongst the people. And all Asaph is doing is he's recalling God's wonderful, great deeds. So it's near to him. Because he remembers. The thanks of verse 1 are prompted by all the memories that that Asaph has. And and they're being recited by him in this song. And have been generation after generation since. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. I guess the women do too. That's okay. Men and women tell of your wonderful deeds. So from praise to the voice of God. Breaking into this song. Here's where God speaks through Asaph. And we get to our first point. There is a warning here from the judge. A warning from the judge. See, if there's any doubt about who's in control here, God, well, look at it. He makes it really clear. Verse 2 to verse 5. In verse 2, have a look. I'm just going to run through these verses very quickly and make some comments about them. Verse 2, it is time... And justice, those two things that God has control over. He, he chooses the moment that each of us will be judged, and he will judge uprightly, in other translations, with equity. And the interesting thing there is that none of us will have complaint. We will have to give an account, and he will judge justly and rightly. And none of us will be able to shake our puny fists at God and say, that's not fair. In verse 3, the world is humbled. Do you see that? When the earth and all its peoples quake, it is I who hold the pillars firm. Pillars are just this great picture of kind of political, financial, you know, powers of institutions of power, if you like. And it may look as uh, uh, that they, and they may feel that they have power and control. And of course they do to a degree. But only under the power and authority of God. And that is God's common grace. It's his common gift to all of the world. And he's given people like him to be policemen, to enact justice, only under his justice. But here God speaks to remind us all that he is that stabilizing strength, that he can, yes, he could break a country, an economy, or lift it up. Look at verse 4. The powers of the world are warned from arrogance. They're to boast no more. Oh, they have a modicum of power. But it is limited and they are fragile. Look at verse 5 there, just to finish this little section. There's a metaphor. It's used again twice through this psalm. A metaphor of horns here. And it's used to warn the reader to not exert their power. Horn is kind of a metaphor of power there. They're not to overexert their power before an infinite power. 
or toward an infinite power, which they seem to lack understanding about. In these verses, God, in his kindness, offers us, I guess, warning after warning after warning to not kind of step over the mark, to know our limitations before him, the great judge. He has infinite power, and hear this, he has infinite ability to exert that power. And the problem for many, and this may be true of you today, and the problem that many of us have is that, that God seems perhaps distant. We've, we've kind of pushed him out of our lives that we, we wonder whether that is true. He, he seems so removed and therefore his power seems distant. His judgment seems distant and perhaps even non-existent. I guess that is the reality for those who are mocking God in Psalm 74. When God seems so removed, it's quite easy to mock God, isn't it? C.S. Lewis observed um, it in this way when I was reading about this psalm, his comments on this. He, he, he observed a trend in his culture just you know, 70 years ago. And he observed a trend that, and concluded that many of us do not see God as the loving, dis- disciplining father and judge, as his word declares him, but rather Many of us in our culture and his culture too, we rather view God in a different way. We don't view him as the father who disciplines, but rather the benevolent grandfather. You know, that kind of fun, bubbly figure that kind of waltzes in and has all the fun with the kids, but if they're ill, just pass them back to the parents. No, that's how we view God. His judgment seems so removed that actually he's become the loving, benevolent grandfather who won't discipline who longs to be our friend. But we need to get the right perspective on God and his character. And so we begin to get a right perspective on his works, specifically here, judgment. So God here lovingly warns his people about his judgment. He warns us from arrogance and boasting. He warns us to to help us realize that although we have control in some areas of our lives to a small degree, that power is finite. No, he is the great one and the great judge and the great king over all things. So now the psalm moves um, from a word from a judge to, secondly on on our outlines, a sobering glimpse of judgment, and it is sobering. I don't know about you, but I I recognise around us, we love to exalt one another, we lift one another up, to use the language here. There are awards and ceremonies now for everything, aren't there? Whether in the workplace or on TV, you know, you get get every award for everything within the whole of our culture seems to happen. They roll out the red carpet and someone gets a medal for it. Even in schools today, no one can lose. So sports day has just happened, everyone's a winner. Isn't that great? You all get a certificate, you all get a prize, you all get a medal and a cup. It's amazing. Long gone are the days, I used to work in a school where you could get yourself, we had these boards in our dining room, refectory we like to call it, but you know, it's where you ate the food. And um, on the boards, you you could get on a board, some schools, it's only if you're a Nobel Prize winner or an Olympic gold medal, that's Eton and Harrow by the way. Um, But you know, my school, a little bit down from there. Um, You know, you could get on your board if you represented the country at something, you know, a sport. But we live in a work and working cultures that... 
we just love to praise one another. We love to lift one, one another up, don't we? And you do it all the time, sometimes looking for praise back. You did a great job today, you know. What are you searching for? And so did you. What a great team we are. And so on. But on the last day when God judges, we will be on our own face to face. We'll have no colleague and no family member to kind of exalt us and lift us up. Or to vouch for us. Verse 6, look at it. It says, says, no one can take God's place. He will either bring us down or exalt us and lift us up. The last metaphor of this psalm, I've moved to it quite quickly, is I think perhaps the most haunting, and probably the best known though. It's this well-known metaphor of the cup. Now the cup, as you well know, can be either a cup of blessing as it was for David, the psalmist, in Psalm 23, that is, he recognised that the Lord is his great shepherd who cares for him, and therefore his cup is overflowing. It's a cup or a life of blessing. But the cup elsewhere is, is used not as a metaphor of, of life enjoying God's blessing, but rather a life enduring his just judgment. And verse 8 is a very sobering glimpse of that judgment. Look at it with me if you can. In the hand of what? What does it say? How's that spelled? The Lord in capitals. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup. That is Lord there with the capitals. He's basically referring to God's covenant name, which is Yahweh there in the Hebrew. A a name that demonstrates that God has entered into an agreement with his people. A binding agreement through faith in him. A a covenant that is eternal, uh, that has expectations on both sides. So let's look at it again. In the hand of that covenant Lord, there is a cup. A cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. I want to explain the picture. I think you know what it means. It's pretty clear, isn't it? But let me just spell it out. The picture is of of humanity standing before God at judgment and having to taste the righteous and right and proper judgment for every last drop of their lives that has ignored God or mocked God or rebelled against God. And the point is, we all deserve that cup. None of us could stand at judgment and try and talk God around, you know, to lighten the cup. Of course, some of us will have cups that are more bitter, if you like. There, those of us who have been more openly hostile to God and, and this world, judgment will come more severely for some, yes. But however much we are exalted by those around us, we all deserve this cup. Every single one of us sat here. And we might not like to use that term. Look at the term in verse 8. Uh, it, wicked, it, it seems strong, doesn't it? But I guess the, the, the counter to that is that none of us can claim that we've never done anything wrong, can we? Your cup may be light, if you like, and relatively sweet. But at judgment, you'll still have a cup that you will have to drink. That, that picture of Drinking down the justice of God. Right down to the very dregs. It is what I deserve. It is perfect justice. So, I want to move on, but why does the psalm finish positively then? 
Isn't that strange? Because if, if you're anything like me, while I was preparing this, I don't feel particularly positive right now, do you? No. Not at all. I, I see no reason to rejoice and sing praises, as in verse 9. Look at it. As for me, I will declare this forever. Hmm, that doesn't sound too much fun to declare. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. Is it, I want to... I want to ask, is this an appropriate response to judgment? You see that on your sheets in verse 9. But once again, I think here, and Asaph is a genius in this, in perspective. You know, perspective in, the, in this sense is so important. Asaph is looking to those who mock God. And he's rejoicing that, that he does not have to bring justice to them. Rather, it is in God's hands. That's what he's rejoicing about. He praises God because justice will be done. That's why he's praising But then that begs a question, doesn't it? And we want to know the answer. What about him? What about you? What about me? Well, God speaks and he says in verse 10, and this is the key to his praise. I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. That is the one who pledges himself to God through faith. The righteous one here in verse 10. They will be removed from that judgment that they deserve on that final day. And they will be, as it says, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Lifted up, exalted by God himself. And that's why I put the final point. It's a merciful saving from judgment. A merciful saving from judgment. That the covenant Lord, as he has promised in that covenant, will mercifully save his faithful people, from all they deserve. We've not earned it. It is that gracious gift from a loving, heavenly, not grandfather, father. And that is it. That is Psalm 75. And we could stop there. I could say amen. And you would respond, amen. No, we wouldn't, but there we go. You know, that is judgment as depicted here in Psalm 75. Asaph is thankful for God, for his justice. There's a warning from God, this, that sobering glimpse of judgment. Uh, and, and lastly, the response from those who escape what we all deserve. But there's one last question, I think. How? How do we escape? How do we not drink that cup ourselves? How can we avoid that cup of judgment in verse 8? How can we become the righteous to be lifted up? How can we declare this to the world and praise God? We don't know how it's happened. Well, if you know your Bibles well, I, you know, I know you're all, you know the answer, but let's just go through it because it's helpful. This metaphor of the cup is used a number of places elsewhere in some pretty significant moments, as you well know. So we can turn to Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 39. You picture the scene. Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do turn to it if you want to. Matthew 26, verse 39. You know it incredibly well, but it's good to look at it. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Then we've got a page number? 997. Matthew 26, you've got the picture. Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Night before he's about to die. And look what he does. He's praying to his father. Look at he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, 
may this cup, cup of Psalm 75 verse 8, that cup, may it be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Let me read one, one verse. I read it at the prayer meeting the other day. One verse of a great old hymn. I think it summarizes it brilliantly. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop, tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings draft for me. You see, there is, as you look at the foot of a cross, an empty cup. In fact, there are millions upon millions of empty cups at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And each have been drunk down to the very dregs. Whose cups are they? They're the cups of the righteous. That is, those who are right with God. Just as in verse 10 of Psalm 75. But how do you get the cup that you hold, your life, essentially who you've been, everything that you've thought and said and done, every time that you've rebelled against God, a justice drop has been poured into that cup and it's bitter to taste that justice. Well, how can you get from not drinking that cup yourself and all of that judgment and justice that you deserve, how can you get Jesus to drink it for you? How is that, how is that possible? Well, as Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is not only taking on himself all of my unrighteousness, all the contents of that cup. No, what he's doing, he's freely giving up his own righteousness, his empty cup for all who trust in him. We need to trust in Jesus, his perfect life. That pure and empty cup. There's none of God's justice and wrath in that cup. And what is available on the cross for those who put their trust in him is that substitutionary work, that swap. His perfect life for your dirty life. Where is your cup? Where is it? It is either in one of two places. Either it's in your hand and you will face God and all of the justice that we've seen in Psalm 75 and he will make you drink it right down to the dregs. Or your cup is empty at the foot of the cross. Where is your cup? God is in control of all things. The psalm is clear. Judgment is coming. The judge is not dead, but has risen from the dead. The Father has vindicated him, evidenced in his resurrection and his appearing. Thousands of people saw him, evidenced in history. And now he waits for a day when he will come to return to judge. And he will either, now you will either drink the cup of judgment or rejoice that the cup has been drunk for you. Let's pray. Holy Father, this is is sobering, but like Asaph, it is right to give you thanks. It is right to tell of your wonderful deeds. It is right to want to declare this forever, to sing 
your praises because the righteous, those who have trusted in you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has drunk the cup for those who have put their trust in him. Those of us here who that applies to will one day be lifted up. So we do want to rejoice. We do want to praise. Though we are completely undeserving, we want to give you thanks. And we want to live thankful lives. Pray that it will be so this week. Amen.